0: Alrighty, any questions from last week? We stopped last week with the papacy, with the papacy. We're not going to get into that until two weeks from tonight. Next week, we don't have uh, institutes, right? Zach just said, uh, have the youth instead. Uh, But we'll get back into the papacy once we look at Charlemagne, right? So we're going to look at the papacy, and the rise of Charlemagne, Right? and the resurrection, if you will, or the res- restoration of the Western Empire under Charlemagne. It's not going to be the same type of empire, but there is an empire that arises out of Charlemagne. All right, tonight, we're going to look at the Eastern Church. We're going to learn about the Orthodox Church. All right? They're a little different. They're a little weirder compared to our Western sensibilities, uh, they would probably be what you could call the original charismatics, right? minus the weird babbling in tongues and then you know, all that other jazz that comes with charismatics. Right? But they rely, their focus a lot of the time in their theology is on the movement and the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? So if we read uh, Orthodox theology today, it's very heavily, it's very uh, mystical. It's, uh, there's a lot of mystery to it and their answers are usually something like, in the Holy Spirit. And you're like, oh, okay, all right. So, but they're a great bunch, all right? Here we go. For the first part of this, I just want you to listen. Don't take notes, because we're just gonna do a bunch of like weird world history here for a second. When we get into the Christological debates, those are things that are gonna be probably a little bit more familiar with you. Then, you know, you can start taking notes, raise a hand, ask questions, make comments, right? Don't throw spit wads at the teacher tonight. We had a mess of them up here last week, so I'm looking at you. Right? Okay? Right? All right. The Western Empire falls. Its last emperor is removed in AD 476 right, by the Eastern Emperor. Right? Despite the Western's fall, the Eastern Empire uh, lasts for another 1,000 years. Right? It becomes known as the Byzantine Empire after the old name for Constantinople, which is Byzantium, right? So, for, throughout all the Middle Ages, it's just called the Byzantine Empire, right? Uh, despite foreign invasions, inner turmoil, the East survives until it eventually is taken over by the Ottomans in AD 1453, so literally almost a 1,000 years, 8476 to AD 1453, right? So... The church during this time, one church. There's not an Eastern church. There's not a Western church. There's not a Northern church or Southern church. I can't remember what my degrees were there. Anyway, uh, it's just one church, okay? In the Western church, there's not really much of anything except for the rise of Rome. The theological center of the church at this time is North Africa. The majority of the power of the church resides in three cities, Antioch, Alexandria, down in Egypt, and then, of course, Constantinople, because that's where the capital of the empire is, right? Okay? But the church is one church. It's not an eastern church. It's not a western church. It's everybody says, hey, we are the church, right? Emperors in the east, though, keep a tight rein on the church leaders in the east, often causing unnecessary strain between the two entities and leading to civil intervention in church matters. Right? Remember, Constantine saw himself as the bishop of bishops. So he was like, if there's a controversy in the church, I'm going to sit down and make you guys work it out. Right? Is he a bishop? No. He is the emperor. All other emperors until the fall of Constantinople All other emperors think the exact same thing. They claim for themselves the the title bishop of bishops. Uh, What else we got? Oh, uh, Eastern monasticism. We talked about Western monasticism last week. Eastern monasticism strives to keep spiritual matters away from what they saw as the corrupting influences of the state. As we will see in two weeks, we will see that in the West, that is the total opposite. Monasticism and the papacy go hand in hand. The papacy has huge influences over the kings and queens of Europe uh, for the next 1,300 years, basically until about the Enlightenment, right? Or until Henry VIII goes, (laughs) ha no, okay? In England, right? Uh, The patriarch of Constantinople, he's kind of like the bishop, the patriarch is, the uh, patriarch of Constantinople, apart from a few corrupt bishops to hold that office, was usually in constant tension with the emperor. And that makes sense. Because if you're the bishop of Constantinople and you're trying to take care of the flock of Constantinople and the emperor sits and says, oh, well, but I'm the bishop of bishops, how do you think you're going to do in your office? Probably not so well. You're going to be a little mad every time he steps in. We'll also understand that there's a female emperor that comes to play here in the next couple hundred years. Okay? All right? So as a result of these, of these tensions and the stuff that's arising up in the empire, much of the theological discussions become sullied with the possibility of appealing to the emperor to settle theological debates. This often leads to crushing one's theological and political opponent well, you disagree with me? Well, we'll just go talk to the emperor. Oh, did I tell you that I'm buddy-buddy with the emperor? This isn't going to work out well for you. Okay. All right. This often leads to excommunication from the church, exile, and just for kicks, execution. Right? The three E's, excommunication, exile, and execution. Emperors made theological discussion, or excuse me, theological decisions out of political necessity or political considerations, uh, and because of this, much of the thousand years between the fall of the Western Empire and the fall of the Eastern Empire is marked with those theological dis- uh, controversies. However, those controversies are important, right? Because they are central to the gospel as the Church strives to define its Christology. We're going to look at these Christological debates here in a second. And you'd be like, I thought we had that all figured out. Guess what? We didn't. Okay? Since the church, though, is still one, the decisions made in the East have a direct effect uh, in the East and are considered normative even in the East and West, even though the West has basically no participation in these discussions. Right? They may send a few representatives, but for the most part, all of these decisions that we're going to look at tonight basically come out of Antioch and Alexandria and Constantinople. Okay? Once again, those three cities, not in the West. Okay? All right. But also out of these theological theological controversies, we then see the development of the great schism that eventually divides the East from the West. Okay? And we'll get into that tonight. Questions so far? Concerns, comments, snider marks? No? Okay. Yes, sir? See me after class. All righty, this is when you can start taking notes. Yes, Kelly's like yeah. Worked out my forearm. It's all good to go this week. Yeah, You're like I'm to go good. good, good. All righty, the Christological debates. The Councils of Nicaea eighty three twenty five and Constantinople eighty three eighty one had settled the questions. Regarding the divinity of the second and the third persons of the Trinity. Right, we discussed that a couple weeks ago. Right? However, these councils did not settle how the divine and the human were joined in one person, Jesus Christ. They just said, well, of course, he's God in the flesh. Fully man, fully God. Boom. And the question was like, excuse me, how does that work out? And they're like, I don't know. Right? This, though, becomes the... Fundamental Christological question, and a pretty darn important one if I do say so myself. I even put it up there. So it is pretty important, okay? Two schools arise from these controversies. Two schools, okay? Oh, wait, I forgot that one. All these debates are around the joining of the divine and the human in Christ. So two schools arise, Right. One is called the Antiochene. Guess where they're from? Antioch, very good. The other one is called the Alexandrine. Guess where they're from? Alexandria, right? So you have these old centers of Christianity are actually going to be the ones that push for what we end up calling the Chalcedonian definition. Right? They're going to debate back and forth. Antiochene rose out of Antioch, right? but not all who followed this school of thought were either in or from Antioch. right? Just like you... You read your favorite author, you don't live in the same house as your favorite author, but you're like, I really like his or her writings, right? So you become a big fan of them, and you follow them around, right? There you go, okay? The same thing with the Alexandrines, right? But uh, we'll get to that in a second. For the Antiochene school, Jesus was both divine and human, right? Let me say that again. For the Antiochene school, Jesus was both divine and human and human, and you're like, okay, that doesn't, right, we thought maybe we've already settled this, right, okay, here's the funny thing, the Alexandrines, or Alexandrines, also thought that Jesus was both divine and human, so guess what, they have one point that they agree on, the point of disagreement is, how does that all fit together, okay, for the Antioch's To be savior of human beings, Jesus himself had to be 100% fully human. I'm going to read you a quote from Gregory of Nazianzus, and you're going to be like, oh, that makes a whole lot of sense. Gregory of Nazianzus said, for that which he was not taken up, he has not saved. Okay, let me say that again. For that which he has not taken up, he has not saved. Now, that is a negative way of saying this, if it's not in humanity, then Jesus didn't take it up and save it, okay, you're like, well, why didn't he just say it that way, I don't know, because he's old, and that's the way they wrote back then, okay, right, for that which he has not taken up, he has not saved, he saved that which he joined to his divinity, okay, if only half of Adam had fallen, then it would be possible for Christ to take up and save only that half. But, if the entire human nature fell, all of it must be united to the word in order to be saved as a whole. And I'm pretty sure everybody in this room would say, amen and amen. That sounds exactly right. Right? Okay? However, for the Antiochians, the Godhead dwells fully in Christ, but we must not understand this in a way that diminishes Christ's humanity. So the Antiochines really want to say, in order for Jesus to save people, he had to be human. And we cannot diminish anything that is his humanity. Because then it just doesn't make any sense. Okay? Right? So Antiochines really placed an emphasis on Christ's humanity. Right? However, as in all good things there is a extreme and there are extreme antiocenes who focus on Christ's humanity to the point that they diminish his divinity right so jesus becomes almost like a good teacher and that's about it okay right so the antiocenes say jesus is both fully divine and fully human right if he's not fully human, then what point is, what's the point? Right? If he doesn't save all of Adam, he saves none of Adam. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. The Alexandrines, on the other hand, other than confirming that Jesus is both divine and human, the Alexandrines relied heavily on the teachings of Clement and Origen, stressing Jesus as the teacher of divine truth. They're going to go a little Gnostic on us. They're going to try to separate the humanity from the divinity in a way. They're going to focus more on the divinity of Christ as opposed to the humanity of Christ, right? So the problem with Alexandrines is that you get to this point where, yes, Jesus is human, but we won't celebrate that. We have to to hold on to his divinity, okay? Right? So the Antiochines hold on to his humanity whilst... Upholding his divinity, the uh, that was the Tyachines, excuse me, the Alexandrines hold on to his divinity, while sometimes diminishing his humanity. Do you still see the tinge of Gnosticism that goes through both of those lines, right? Spirit is good, flesh is evil, right? Okay, so there's there's still a separation. There's still a separation. But what's interesting is this, is that for the most part, we would still consider both of these schools as orthodox little o. They, they both uphold Nicene orthodoxy, what we quote every week. Right? So they're, they're not saying anything heretical as a group, but we're going to see individuals that do say some really <laughs> crazy stuff, which is then why we have to have the Council of Cal, uh, Chalcedon. Right? Questions on the two groups. Antiochene, out of Antioch, Alexandrine, out of Alexandria. The West, for the most part, they don't really struggle with this. Remember when we talked about Tertullian two or three weeks ago? Tertullian was the first theologian who sat down and said, this is how this all works, two natures, one person. Boom, there it is. The West has no problem with this discussion because they're like, Two natures, one person, how it works, it's a mystery, it's all up in the Godhead. I don't we don't need to sit and contemplate our navels about it. Right? We just we just know that Christ is fully man and fully divine. He is the second person of the Trinity. All of that that entails. Right? So they're gonna they're gonna rely on Tertullian more than their own pagan philosophers. Right? But what we will see is that the West in these discussions actually acts as like a balancing role. They play a balancing role within these discussions. And as we look at the Chalcedonian definition, you're going to see a lot of Tertullian in it because that's basically who they use. They just take his writings, plagiarize them a little bit, right? and then say, ta-da, here we go. And the West is like, that's what we've been saying all along. Why doesn't anybody listen to us? Okay? All right? questions so far. No? All righty. Here's the first guy to try to define all of this, and he messes up big time. Apollinaris of Laodicea. Right? Laodicea is one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. It's in Asia Minor, right? modern-day Turkey. There he is, right? looking pretty sanctified with his hands out. That's the way you do it. Apollinaris, he's the first attempt to settle the question. He's a strong defender of Nicene orthodoxy, right? Which is why he's not necessarily considered a heretic. Uh, He suggests that Jesus did have a physical body, but not a human intellect. Hmm. So, he has a physical body, but not a human intellect. Instead, the human intellect is taken over by the second person of the Trinity that make sense to anybody? If you say yes, I would love for you to explain it to me. Because right? theologians, what's that? Alright. For Apollinaris, he says that Jesus is a 100% physical human. Except he doesn't have a physical, or he doesn't have a human intellect. There's no will or no mind. No, nothing. Nothing that makes him think on his own. Right? So what happens is that the second person of the Trinity, the Word, capital W, the Word of God, comes in and takes that over at birth, right after birth, on the cross. Apollinaris never really says, right? He just says that the intellect, Jesus' intellect, though he's fully human, his intellect is fully divine. Anybody have a problem with that? We should all be going like this. All right. Because if you remove the human intellect, are you fully human? The answer is no. Okay? If you are fully human, and I remove your intellect, are you fully human? No. Okay? You're an, an automaton at best. You're a robot. Right? Yeah. You're a zombie. Right? Until something then comes in and takes over you. Right? That's... Apollinaris is He's treading, treading waters there that he really shouldn't be in, right? The Alexandrines, right, they could accept this proposal, which is interesting because Apollinaris is not an Alexandrian. But the Antiochines could not accept this position. Jesus must be truly human in all aspects of his humanity. Any part of what it means to be human that has not been taken up by Christ, in this case the intellect, then the whole human is not saved. If you're not 100% human and 100% divine, what's the point of taking up humanity and being saved? If, if, I, don't, if I don't do 100% of Kyle, then you're not really saving Kyle. Okay? All right. Thus, that's that quote that we wrote from, read from Nancy Anzis, right? right? Let me read that first sentence again to you. For that which he has not taken up, he has not saved. He saved that which he joined to his divinity. It has to be all of it, all or nothing. Uh, his ideas, though he's not rejected as a heretic, his ideas are rejected at the at the uh, Council of Constantinople in 83-81. He's the first, right? So if you don't get anything else out of Apollinaris, just remember this: he was Jesus was human, except for in his intellect. So in what made him smart, what made him move, right? So it's basically like taking out his brain and then putting it in with. I don't know, a divine brain, okay, right? Can't do that, can't do that, right? The next guy, and he is uh, a big one, is Nestorius. His is the second attempt to settle the question. He is from the Antiochene School. He was elected the Patriarch of Constantinople in 8428, right? Now, let me tell you why we're about to get in some really heavy stuff with Nestorius, right? There are some political intrigues surrounding his office. Basically, the Council of Constantinople gives a lot of prestige to the Bishop of Constantinople, and the older bishoprics of Antioch and Alexandria do not like that. Right now, they've been around as a church a lot longer than Constantinople. Right, it wasn't it wasn't until Constantine that we had Constantinople. Right. So what happens is that there begins to be a little bit of a competition between Antioch and Alexandria about who can fill the seat in Constantinople. So like, oh, well, if we can get somebody in Constantinople who was on one time associated with Antioch, that's fantastic for the Antiochian position. The Alexandrians are going, well, if we get somebody who was one time affiliated with Alexandria into the bishopric of Constantinople, that's good for our positions. Right, So they begin to make it a competition. There's a lot of political stuff involved. Uh, there's this one episode where a bishop-elect is murdered by the opposing party, right? And then it's like, oh, well, I guess we'll just put our guy in there and off we go, right? That sounds like a great thing for the church to do, you know, murder a bishop-elect, right? Just because they, they wanted their guy in there, right? So what happens is Nestorius, being an, an Antiochene, he's being heavily watched by those of the Alexandria school, right? And they're waiting, they're you know, like a crouching lion, just waiting for him to mess up, right? And guess what? He does. He opens his whatever size foot he had, a mouth he had and inserted, inserted whatever size foot he had, right? Because he's about to say something that is totally weird, right? He says that Mary, the Virgin Mary, should not be called the Theotakos. Now, let me spell this word for you. T-H-E-O-T-O-K-O-S. T-H-E-O-T-O-K-O-S. Theotakos. Theo means God. Takos means to bear or to carry. So the Theotokos is the God-bearer. Mary is the God-bearer. 99.999% of us in here have come from a Protestant background. Raise your hand if you think that Theotokos is a weird word. It's all right. Just raise your hand. It is. It is. It's foreign to our senses. It means God-bearer. God-bearer, right? Let me put a balm on that burn by saying this. Theotakos has nothing to do with Mary. It never has, and it never will. What arises is what we call the Theotokos debate, and it's actually one of my favorite debates in church history, because when you look at it, what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, A, how does Christ, how does, how does the second person of the Trinity become involved? How, do, how, how does all that mesh? All right? Tertullian would say, well, it's two natures, one person, just let it go, all right? But what they're trying to do is say, how does God become incarnate? Why did he choose to use Mary? How does all of this work? Right? Guess what? They don't solve it, right? but they just go with it. Right? The Theotokos debate is fantastic. Uh, I think we as Protestants could learn a lot from it. Uh, I'm probably going to say something that makes several of you in this room want to burn me at the stake tonight. You'll have to catch me beforehand. <laughs> all right? We as Protestants do not do enough, and I'm not going to say venerate, but to make sure that we understand Mary's role in the salvation history. Mary plays a very important role in salvation's history, right? And that makes us uncomfortable to talk about, right? But because she's a chosen instrument of God, he used her to bring his son into the world, and without her, all of this discussion is for Neil, All right, So we need to do a better job of understanding that and try not to think, oh my gosh, that sounds like Rome, or that sounds like Constantinople. I'm not comfortable with that. Because they were 100% perfectly comfortable talking about stuff like that. All right? Okay? That's my, my preaching for the evening. Right? There's always that one thing. All right? This is it. Instead, instead of the theotakos word, Nestorius uses one called the christotakos. Christo, C-H-R-I-S. T O T O T O K O S so Christ o tokos right what does Christ mean Christ means anointed one so Christo takos means the Christ bearer right so we've gone from the god bearer to simply the Christ bearer right here's what that means basically what it means is that you're separating the person or the second person of the trinity from the godhead when you read his stuff when you read Nestorius' arguments, he's separating out of the Trinity Jesus and saying, no, instead it's, it's this. You can't do that. You can't do that. If, God is, if Christ is 100% fully divine, within that Godhead, everything has to come together. Right? I realize that this is trying to, like, for our finite minds, trying to wrap our minds around the infinite, which is what we're trying to do tonight don't think this is going to make sense within the hour and a half that we're talking tonight. I'm still trying to work through a lot of this myself, right? Guess what? I'm not going to this side of eternity, That means we have all of eternity to figure it out, and guess what? From what I understand, eternity lasts a long time, (laughs) right? Which means that we probably never will, and that's fine because we will actually have direct communication with the Godhead, right? and we can continue to learn that way, right? But that's the problem. He's upholding what Nestorius affirms, or he thinks he confirms, is that when speaking of the incarnation, one must still distinguish between the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. What he's doing is he's upholding the Antiochian position. It's just an extreme Antiochian position, because this is where he opens his mouth and says something stupid. He goes, there are... Two natures and two persons. Hmm. Jesus. He says that there are two natures and two persons. There's the human nature, the divine nature, and somehow those two are split. So basically what he just made, Jesus was schizophrenic. That's what he did. He split him mentally, splitting physically. Okay? Raise your hand if you have a problem with the idea of two natures and two persons. Some of you didn't raise your hands. <laughs> I'm taking names. I'm taking names. You've got them back in the back. Pick them up on your way out. Okay? Alrighty? Right? So two natures, two persons. Now the Alexandrines jump all over this, as they should have. Right? Because he separates the two natures and the one person. That should be and the one person. Oh, those are my notes, not up there. Never mind. Okay? So that causes some problems. So Cyril of Alexandria asked the emperor to call a council at Ephesus in AD 431. However, Nestorius and his cohort are delayed for two weeks, but Cyril goes ahead and pushes through with the council. So Nestorius isn't even allowed to back up his own arguments. Because Cyril's like, let's just push this through and call him a heretic and get it over with, okay? Now, that's mainly because uh, Cyril is an Alexandrian, an Alexandrine, and he's looking, chomping at the bit just to get him to, to be called a heretic. So Cyril and his group push the vote through, right? Nestorius is a heretic, right? However, Nestorius and his group finally arrive They're not even allowed in the council because they've already been condemned as heretics. So being a good theologian, Nestorius goes, okay, well, we'll we'll start our own council, all right? right? We were all in clubs when we were younger. I'm going to go start my own club, (laughs) right? I don't care, you know, right? Fine, no girls allowed, you know? (laughs) One of those types of things, right? So... So Nestorius has his council. They condemn Cyril as a heretic, so now they've both condemned each other as heretics. All right. Guess how much work they got done? Zero. All right? So the emperor, Theodosius II, right, he gets involved and he says both councils are void. All right. Why? Because Theodosius is the bishop of bishops and he can make those, de- those types of declarations. All right. So he says... Now both of you parties now learn how to play nice. I'm gonna make you sit in the same room and you're gonna work this out. And that's what they do. Because they basically just say, let's just go back to Nicene Orthodoxy and not worry about it and keep moving. Nestorius, don't say what you're saying, right? They don't they don't really solve anything. Except Nestorius is still considered a heretic. He's exiled. He first goes to where does he go? Oh, a monastery in Antioch, and then he flees to Petra. Right? Anybody know where Petra is? It's in Jordan, and you've all seen a picture of it because we've all seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. That is that little crescent valley. Right? That's Petra. Alrighty? Okay. All righty? Okay? It literally means rock. Right? Okay? So nothing's solved on the question of the union of the divine and human in Jesus Christ. They all go back to Nicene, the Nicene uh, Council. And they're like, okay, all right, nothing. All right, are you, you feeling any, uh, any better about this controversy at all? Anything been solved yet? Nope. All right, okay. So here we go. We're going to lead in to the last ones that then bring in, what did I do? With the Council of Chalcedon, all right? But before that, we have to meet the two people that lead us into the Council of Chalcedon. The first guy is named Dioscorus. There he is on the left. Right. And Eutychus. Right. If you're looking for boys' names, there you go. Okay, This is the third attempt to settle the question. Dioscorus secede Cyril of Alexandria as the bishop of the city. Eutychus, he's just a monk living in Constantinople. Eutychus is outmatched in his position in this one. Eutychus says that Christ was from two natures before the union, but one nature afterwards. To be honest, that makes absolutely no sense, and theologians as historians are still trying to figure out what that means. Basically, he's just some crazy monk saying crazy things. But he's taking quite a following... And so he has to be addressed, right? The patriarch of Constantinople, a guy named Flavian, condemns Eutychus' teachings as bordering docetism. Now, we talked about docetism a couple weeks ago. We're just going to keep flying through that one. Dioscorus blows the whole affair out of proportion, causing Emperor Theodosius II, because he's been around for a while, to call another council at Ephesus. Again, this is the second council of Ephesus, in AD 449. This council is a sham. Dioscorus knows how to wheel and deal politically, and he's basically made Theodos- Theodosius' mind up for him before the council even begins. Right? So in the midst of the council, Patriarch Flavian is roughed, roughed up so bad. Remember how I, like, I said they like to fight each other? <laughs> well, this one killed a person. All right, They rough up Flavian so bad he dies a couple of days later. That's fun, right? Okay? Love it when the church acts like the church, right? A letter from Pope Leo in Rome is not allowed to be read, right? And the doctrine of two natures of Eutychus, as Eutychus puts forth, is declared a heresy, as it should have been. That's the only positive that comes out of this, right? The council went so far as to say that if anyone disagreed with the council's decision, that person could not be ordained as a clergyman in the church. That's getting a little powerful and also has nothing to do with the discussion that needed to go on between these two guys. Right. So, Leo in Rome is not pleased and when he finds out that his letter's not read. And then, it's found out that Theodosius II takes a bribe from the Alexandrian supporters. They give him a large amount of gold. And he puts it all in the Hagia Sophia or the St. Sophia Church there in Constantinople, gilding everything in this fantastic gold leaf. Right? But guess what? The Alexandrines bought the emperor off. Right? Remember I said there was going to be some political will in Dillon, not all of it's always nice. Right? So they bought off the, they bought off the emperor. So the position of the second council of Ephesus is already made up before the council even begins. Yes, ma'am? Basically, uh, we'll get into that here in a second. However, it's basically just, he takes Tertullian, says, this is what Tertullian says, why are we arguing against Tertullian? At this point in church history, I'm going to be honest, there's not a whole lot of like original thought because it's already been said. It's just an expansion of what has been said. We'll run into that a lot when we look at the Reformation, right, because they're arguing Augustine. Augustine says it all, right? The Reformation is literally an argument between the Catholic Church and the Protestants over Augustine and who is right, right? We are. That's right. I said it. It's on record, (laughs) right? Okay? Here's the great thing. As fate would have it, Theodosius II falls off his horse and breaks his neck. So guess what happens to Theodosius, right? His sister and her husband, his sister's name is Pulcheria, if you're looking for women's names girls' names, there you go, P-U-L-C-H-E-R-I-A, Pulcheria and her husband Marcian not to be confused with Marcian but spelled the same but with an a instead of an o so m a r c i a n marcian i don't know what that means so it doesn't matter right mark i don't know doesn't matter anyway they become co-emperors whoa a female as an emperor of the eastern empire awesome All right that's cool All right and she calls another council to fix this massive mess she calls it at Chalcedon, the Council of Chalcedon. Now, some people say Chalcedon, and they would be wrong. It is Chalcedon. Do we have a map of Chalcedon? Yeah, she was the ruler of the Eastern Empire, of, the, of what was the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Well, no, we're still a couple hundred years before that even, they even think about that. Uh, Mohammed isn't even born yet at this time. But oh, there's Chalcedon, number four, right up there on the, uh, on the Black Sea, or near the Black Sea, right through the Dardan- Dardanelles or whatever whatever that thing is right there, between Constantinople, right? So everybody got there by ship. Yeah, great, fantastic, right? Okay. The Council of Chalcedon, 8451, and this is a big one, okay? okay. Dioscorus and Eutyches are both condemned as heretics as they should have been, right? Mainly, Dioscorus, because he's just a jerk. (laughs) Right? Okay? Leo's letter is finally read, right? Now, this is a couple years after the Second Council at Ephesus. Leo's letter is read. It's a reinstatement of Tertullian's position, two natures, one person. Leo basically says in his letter, if it worked for Tertullian and the Western church has no problem with this, why are we arguing it? Why are you trying to make... Something out of nothing, right? They're like, just go with it, right? Okay? Two natures, one person. Now, normally a council, when it gets together, at the end it creates a creed. Chalcedon does not. They create what is called the Chalcedonian definition, right? It's not a creed. We don't read the Chalcedonian creed. In fact, we just read the Nicene creed, right? But I'm going to read to you, and I forgot to print it off here so I have to get it out of my book. I'm going to read for you the definition. To be honest, the definition is, once again, a reinstatement of Tertullian. That's all it is. Two natures, one person. All wrapped up into one. Got it? Okay? Here it is. Okay? Prepare to have your socks blown off. Following then... The Holy Fathers, we all with one voice teach that it is to be confessed that our Lord Jesus Christ is one and the same God, perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, true God and true human with a rational, rational soul and body and of one substance with the Father in his divinity and of one substance with us in his humanity, right? Two natures, one person. In every way like us, with the only exception of sin, he is begotten of the Father before all time in his divinity and also begotten in the latter days in his humanity of Mary, the virgin bearer of God. And that word bearer of God is theotakos. Okay, This is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, manifested in two natures without any confusion, change, division, or separation, The union does not destroy the difference of the two natures, but on the contrary, the properties of each are kept, and both are joined in on one person. And here's the next big theological word you need to learn, hypostasis. H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. I'll tell you what hypostasis means here in a second. They are not divided into two persons, but belong to the one only begotten Son, the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. All this as the prophets of old said of him, and as he himself has taught us, and as the Creed of the Fathers, the the Apostles' Creed, and then later the Nicene Creed, has passed on to us. Two paragraphs. They struggled with that for 18 weeks, but they got it. Two paragraphs. Fantastic, huh? Right? At least there's something positive out of this one. Number one, they're not punching old men until they die a couple of days later. Right? They're not. They're actually working through this stuff, right? Now hypostasis. Right? We're gonna call it the hypostatic union. Hypostasis literally just means substance. It's a philosophical term, right? It's actually used in scripture as well hypostasis is a Greek word, it just means substance. So basically what they're saying is the substance, the 100% substance of humanity, the 100% substance of divinity is found in one person only, and that is Jesus Christ. So they just spelled it out. That's all they say. Right? Okay? And, they, and who had the privilege of being part of that? Well, the Theotokos, the Virgin Mary. Okay, All right. That's calcedon, right? Yes. Are there others that, um, I'm trying to be like even Mormonism, those that would, by definition of what they believe about Jesus, thus, as heretics? Is?
1: By calcedon,
0: by the definition? Yes. By, the definition. by definition, yes. Yeah, yeah, because they don't, they don't hold, they don't hold to a. They hold basically a two persons two nature, or two nature two persons, right? Mormons go go as far as saying as uh, Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. Yeah. Right. Wrap that your heads around that one. Yeah. Right. That's yep. They would. They slide into a Nestorian type of, uh, of heresy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this definition becomes the standard of Christological orthodoxy in the Western and much of the Eastern churches. Notice I said much of the Eastern churches because there are going to be some dissident churches that we're going to look at here in a second, right? Okay, Question. 100%. So it is for today. Yeah. To yep. Any new idea that comes up? Yeah. Yep. Like yeah. Out of all of this mess that we were just talking about, the only good thing to come out of it so far is Calcedon. Because they took the time instead of pointing fingers and wanting power play positions. They actually sat down and said, "Let's think through this." Right? So, basically what the Chalcedonian definition does is it sets orthodoxy as a box. Okay? It's just setting perimeters. I can be this close to this side and still be considered orthodox, like small o, right? But if I step outside of it, I'm not. Yes, sir? You explain and define orthodox as a heterodox? Uh, Orthodox, by definition, in the church is that which Scripture sets up and is understood by the church fathers and mothers. That's a really poor definition, mainly because it would take, like, hours to unpack all that. Because you guys always ask the most ridiculously hard questions. (laughs) At 7.22 in the evening after we've all been at work day. <laughs> right? Yes, ma'am. It's just understood. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when they right Right, that's a good question. What biblical background do they use for all this? Right? You have to remember that these councils are always only bishops. You're not allowed to be in the council if you're not a bishop. Now, bishops always had their own entourage that came with them, and they were scholars and men of the churches that they served who were way smarter than all of us in this room put together. Right? They knew their scripture. They knew their theology. They understood the Old Testament. They understood the New Testament. They understood that you cannot read the New Testament without the Old Testament, and the New Testament makes the Old Testament complete. So they knew their scriptures forward and backwards. They had entire books memorized. They had all of the Psalms memorized. So when they would sit down and talk, they would say, all right, let's look at Romans. All right. So they'd go through Romans and then pour through it. What does the Psalms say? Oh, look, remember, this is what Paul is quoting in the Psalms. Let's go back and look at the Psalms. All right, so they go back. All right, let's go back from the Psalms. Let's go back to Genesis. All right, so they would put all of these out, right, and they would have their scribes doing all this stuff, and then they'd, they'd create these, you know, you can imagine, like, putting all this vellum up against a wall and being like, okay, we're going we're gonna to connect A to B and B to C, and, and here's what Scripture does. And They would pour tons of hours of prayer into these councils as well. They weren't just sitting around looking pious and holy like we do. In the, they, you see them in the pictures. They were also going <laughs> with their bishop hats and their halos around their bishop hats. Alrighty, okay. So they were struggling the same way that you are now. They were asking questions. They were thinking through things, right? And then they said, "Okay, alright, we've got a good understanding of what's going on. Let's do this." Now they don't cite. I think the thing that you're asking, and a lot of it is, do they cite in these? No, because it was all understood. Yeah, yeah. But that's the, for a council to be an actual good council. And some of these councils that we just talked about, like the second council of Ephesus, was a sham. I'm not even sure they did any type of scripture reading. They probably didn't even pray. They probably showed them, said, this guy's a heretic, great, let's get rid of him, right? Oh, before he even has his chance to defend himself, fantastic, right? Okay? Uh, but, Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to get to that. Yeah. Like that. You can actually find, as Lamont just said, you can find, find those sources, and they'll be like, here's the Nicene Creed, right? Here's the, all the scripture, and there's, you know, you take, like, we believe in God the Father, and just that one that one phrase, and there's, like, a thousand rab- <coughs> biblical references behind it, Right? The one thing you won't find in them, are philosophical arguments. They don't do that. Right? They're not saying, well, if I look at this, then let's see what Plato says. That's good. Right? But they used their classical education, which was the learning of languages and philosophy and history, in their theological discussions, to form their ability to think through this stuff. Right, so they learned critical thinking skills in a classical education. That's my plot for <coughs> classical education tonight. Right? Parents, if you're gonna teach your kids anything, please teach them learn how to think.